Hi, we here at Grace Life would love to help you discover Jesus' unconditional love and grace for you. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you and further establish you in the truth of God's Word. Good old New Testament Christianity, you know? Yes. The cars fall out the windows while he's preaching and all the rest of it. Okay, what I think uh, we can quickly, or when I say quickly, we'll just work through. Uh, again, this is really just to show you, you know, what you can do. You don't have to do it this way, but <clears throat> we get just kind of work through uh, that first... Um, or rather the second scene, scene two, which is the opening that we read from just now. We've all wrote read portion of it. it. As you can see, it's quite a long it's quite a long scene. It starts in chapter four and then it goes right through to the first verse of chapter eight. <clears throat> so it's really a, an opening that is of of a creation that is centered on, on Christ. He's the Lamb, He's the center of this entire scene. And uh, John kind of sets the scene here for us for what is to follow in the rest of all these revelations. So, the first thing I remember we saw, John saw a door standing open in heaven. Isn't that wonderful, eh? You don't have to go knock on the door. Amen. You don't have to force your way in. The door is already open. Open to all who would come. And uh, the door is standing open in heaven. Now the only question you've got to ask yourself is, which heaven? Well, what do you mean, which heaven? I mean, heaven's heaven, for heaven's sake. <laughs> But of course, you know, if you, re if you study the Word of God, when you read the Bible, you'll discover that heaven can denote a number of things. Um, there's the sky above us, or the region where the stars shine, you know, that's the outer heaven, <laughs> this is the inner heaven. Um, is this what, where is heaven? You know, is this the heaven that, did he go and look at the the clouds in the sky, or did he go and fly amongst the stars, you know? Fly me to the moon and let me dance amongst the stars. <laughs> uh, so, I believe what Paul, what John is talking about here is he was taken up to what we call the third heaven. The third heaven. So there's at least three heavens that the Bible teaches us about. The first is really the atmosphere or the heaven of the above the earth that we can see, and uh, and then there's the starry heavens beyond. But then there's also the region of spiritual reality. That's the that's the third heaven. 
as I said, we must be aware as believers that, that there is activity around us that is unseen all the time. Always has been and will continue. And in that, in that realm is conflict all the time. And the third realm, the third heaven really is this, this spiritual realm and of course we know that Paul also mentions that he was he knew a man, as he said which I'm sure was himself he knew a man who went up to the third heaven you can read about that in, in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 2 and it's the region where, where God is okay it's uh, the heavenly places it's uh, it's the realms where we are seated in Christ. Amen? You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Eh? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6. But it also seems to be a place which is not, is, is not without evil. There's a spiritual, a sphere of kind of spiritual reality that is both good and evil that are seen seem to be what they really are. That's what you confront in the, in the spiritual realm. So it does sound a bit strange to us, doesn't it? It's not an easy concept to grasp, but that is really where the realities of life are taking place, <laughs> the spiritual realm. So when you read Revelation, you are seeing into the spiritual realm. Isn't that amazing that God has given us insight into this realm? It's prophesied in John 16. Yeah. You'll see things as they really are. Yeah. What you've been preaching Same about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, it says there that you must see what must take place after this must take place after this. So this is talking about the future. That's obvious, isn't it? But what future is he speaking about here? Is it John's own immediate future? Or is it the whole of subsequent history of the church? Or is it our future regarding these as prophecies which are still to be fulfilled? Question. And so, fortunately, chapter 4 focuses first on the throne. And that is the thing that predominates the scene. The throne of the eternal God. And that's, I mean, I don't think we, we, we necessarily have to be forced to focus on that because that scene just fills everything. <laughs> the splendor of it all, the dazzling splendor. It dominates everything, the throne of God. And so we read about, it's, it's circled with a rainbow, and there's thunder and lightning and a sea of glass. Vivid language. <laughs> Very descriptive. But notice the, the, the terms that are used. The rainbow. Where have you read about a rainbow? What does a, rem a rainbow remind you of? Eh? Noah, yes. the sign. 
thunder and lightning. How about Genesis chapter 9? Thunder and lightning. Whenever the voice of God is spoken of, there's thunder and lightning. So it's a picture, a word picture of the, the, the awesomeness and the hugeness. That voice. <laughs> Still small voice. Thunder and lightning. Uh, Exodus 19 as well, you know, when, when Moses went up onto the mountain. Eh, the Israelites just, you know, the top of the mountain was hidden from them and they heard thunder and lightning. It's thunder and lightning. It's always a, it's a picture, it's a, it's a symbol of the presence of God and, the, and the, of hearing his voice. So you see how, how the Old Testament uh, yeah. descriptiveness is brought through into the New Testament. Amazing. Sea of glass. All, you know, you just see this blinding. If you've ever watched the sun going down over False Bay, you know what the sea of glass is like. You can hardly look at it. It is just dazzling. Um, all contributes to this wonderful uh, vision of the majesty and the might and glory and the power and the mercy of God. And it's all surrounded by seven blazing lamps. Where have we come across these blazing lamps before? Churches. See, it's not just a random thing. The church is there. <laughs> Seven lamps. Four living creatures. They come from Ezekiel. Ezekiel. And Ezekiel saw a vision of heaven. He saw these four living creatures. Now, what do they mean and what do they represent? I haven't the faintest idea, but they're there. <laughs> I'm serious. I, don't, I can't make... Uh, I don't know what they stand for, but they're there. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe one of you will discover what the four living creatures are. You know, one's got the face of an ox, another has got the face of a... Uh, I've heard some things on that, but I'm not convinced. Okay. Four living creatures, 24 elders... 24 elders. That's the whole church. Because later on in Revelation we see that the walls of, of the New Jerusalem are built uh, foundation as the 12 apostles New Testament and the, and the 12 tribes Old sure. Testament. 12 times 12 144. That also appears later on. But yeah, 12 plus 12 is 24. That's what I think. Anyway. Um, and then of course that glorious thing that I read to you that day and night worship goes on without ceasing oh man that I I've been to some I've been to some gatherings where we where worship has gone to a different level I can't explain why in fact in one in one instance, we actually, many people believe that in that worship we heard angels singing as well. Uh, you might think, well, that's, maybe had the wrong stuff for lunch that day or something. <laughs> but truly, it was like awesome. Like there was this echoing sound. And 
everybody just sort of stopped. Right. Now I'm talking about 5,000 plus people in an auditorium. Uh, you know, I've been... I, I, I believe one day that those nations, when they gather around the throne of God and they, they're worshipping people in, from every tribe and nation, I believe Africa will be leading the worship. <laughs> because I tell you, the, the worship of Africa is just unbelievable. And I, as I was preparing this, this morning, I just I was thinking of, a, of an occasion when, when we went to, uh, to do some ministry in, in Senegal in West Africa and um, the Senegalese people are very tall and slim and black they're shiny black almost and of course they all speak French and their own languages etc so it's quite a challenge but I, I was asked to go and minister at this, this uh, pastor's church and uh, he said no he'd come and meet me so he met me and then Called uh, what was called a taxi to the closest place nearest to where he was operating, and then we walked down some little dusty side streets in the city of Dakar, and up into this building which was just full of people. There was, I don't think the building was even properly complete, but there were people living there sure. in every floor, no doors. They just had hung curtains at the entrance to their places. And we went up a few floors, and, and as we were getting closer, I just heard the sound of singing. Wow. And when we, and then we, he got there, and he opened this curtain, and I, when I went in, I mean, it was very kind of dark inside, <laughs> but I just was overwhelmed by the sound of worship. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what they were singing. <laughs> but when, I, when my eyes adjusted, I looked around, it was a, a room probably smaller than this, and I counted at least... 30 people in there, not one single woman, all men, and these guys were, they were sweaty, and the, I mean, it was hot in there, obviously, but they were, they were, I mean, we walked in and they didn't even notice us, it's just, there was just worship, and they were singing, and went on and on and on, until eventually they stopped, and only afterwards I commented to this guy, and I said, you know, I said, that was incredible the way these guys, uh, you know. Where did you find these guys? He said every single one of them had been a Muslim. Oh. Everyone that he had got into that church had been saved. Sure. And I mean, it, to me it just indicated what it means to a person who finds Christ. Oh. You know, and that's the worship that I see here. These are people that... These are worshipping Jesus because, man, what you've saved me from is nothing compared to what you saved me into. So, worship without ceasing. Well, it's like man and nature just joined together here in, uh, in praising God who, who is the creator and the redeemer of nature, of, of creation and of men. Not so. Because re creation is in need of redemption as well. Yeah. Romans chapter 8, 19 and 21. Eh? Well, it, uh, the creation is groaning, yeah. waiting for its redemption. So, here we see all these, every creature in earth and heaven 
singing, worshipping God, because they are joined, obviously, with angelic beings as well. As I said to you before, you'll, you'll find angels all over Re Revelation. We barely talk about angels. <laughs> they live with angels. <laughs> yeah. So, then in chapter 5, uh, the first 14 verses, we see Jesus coming as the Lamb to take the scroll and to open the seals. And then, of course, he has on him the hallmarks of the emblems of his lion-like greatness. And also, still visible to, he's got the seven horns and the ten horns and the seven eyes that we talked about. And he's, he also still has visible wounds of the sacrifice that he played on the cross for us. And, of course, it's that that qualifies him alone to open this, this, the seals. Now, isn't that, doesn't that take you back to another scene? Here, Jesus is given a scroll and he opens the seals. When else did Jesus receive a scroll mm -hmm. and open it and read? Not so, eh? Yeah. In Luke chapter 4. And he went to the synagogue and he opened the, uh, the scroll of Isaiah and began to read mm. prophetically. So, wonderful tying up here of what has happened before with what is happening now mm. in the future. And the Lamb is encircled, in, he's in the center. Every bit of praise points towards him and is directed towards the Lamb of God. Okay, then the, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 is the first seal, which we talked about before as being conquest. And it's represented by a rider on a white horse. He's wearing a crown, notice that, and he rides out as a conqueror, a crown being a sign of conquering. Now, many people have taken that and linked it to Revelation 19, verse 11, which speaks about the rider on the white horse, which is Jesus. But this is not Jesus. So if you encounter that, those people have lost the plot a bit there. This is definitely not Jesus, although he's on a white horse. Um, the one that is to come in Revelation 19, who is truly Jesus, he is named as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This rider has no such title. Right. Other people say that this rider represents the gospel going out. And, you know, like it says in, in uh, Matthew ch chapter 24, verse 14, this gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. So they say, now this, this rider represents the gospel going out. But I don't believe that is the correct interpretation. I mention it all the same because you've come across it. Then we move to the second seal that, G, that the Lamb opens. And this is the seal that releases the fiery red horse of strife. This is a, a rider when he goes forth, he takes peace from the earth. 
and the result of no peace is strife and conflict, men slaying one another. And uh, so some people interpret this as the outcome when some accept the gospel and others reject it. I don't know if that's quite an accurate one. I mean, Jesus did say, you know, I've come to set father against son, etc., etc. And they, 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 take, they immediately say, this is what we're seeing here. Uh, some see it just as persecution of the church by the world. I think that's probably more accurate. But whatever the view is that you take is that we see that peace becomes a scarcity. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Strife is the, the order of the day almost. And sadly, I think that's fairly true of our world today. Mm. We live in a world of strife. Then we move to the third seal, which is the seal that releases scarcity. Now this is a black horse. And uh, the rider here is carrying a, a pair of scales. You know, there's old biblical scales that focus around a fulcrum and you weigh things out on them. Okay? So there's a definite indication there that this has got something to do with commercial activity. And uh, obviously the weights and the measures. Wages and prices. That's what's being described here, the economic conditions. And uh, it's not so much famine, but there is, there is stuff, but there is scarcity. And how does scarcity come about? It's manipulated, yeah. brought about. I can cause scarcity by withholding. And this is a form of persecution that the early church knew. You know, we talk about, yeah, if you've got the mark, you... If you haven't got the mark, you won't be able to buy things, etc., etc. That was happening in the, that was happening in the first century. If you uh, if you didn't do certain things, you were not allowed to buy food. So you know, we think we we're inventing evil. We're just simply perpetuating it. Uh, so there's scarcity. There's food available, but if it's available, it's at excessive prices. What are we faced with now? Right at this moment in our nation, across the world, excessive prices. There's plenty of it, but it's just being choked off and limited. So the staple foods of wheat and corn have got to be substituted by the poor affair, barley. You see, they talk here about barley, not wine, uh, not wheat and corn. Yeah, and uh, surprisingly, or thankfully, the supply of wine and oil doesn't remain affected. <laughs> <laughs> so if you like a glass of wine, don't worry. <laughs> One thing, prophetically, I can declare to you, is always have wine. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, I suppose they're talking about olive oil, yeah, but not, you know, I mean, natural oil, that could be a problem. Uh, so the black horse is really a representation of economic difficulties, which we are familiar with. It's happening, happening now. Then, of course, the fourth seal is the one that 
scares everybody because that's a pale horse, appropriately enough, and it's ridden by someone called Death. Um, so we've seen all these visions of conflict and strife, and and the, the cause here we see the result. Strife and conflict are the cause, the result, death. And it says a quarter of the world's population is wiped out. I think that might not be a statistically a correct number, but it is an indication that there is widespread death as a result of scarcities, conflict, etc. All unnecessary deaths caused by war and food shortage. Unnaturally die. Then 9-11, verses 9-11 to 11 of chapter 6 is the fifth seal. And this is talking about the suffering of God's witnesses. That's the believers. This division describes the martyrs who have given up their lives for the word of God and for the witness that they bore. Uh, verse 9 tells us that they, they are under the altar. And in Leviticus chapter 4 verse 7 it says, The blood of the sacrifices collect at the base of the altar. So you get this picture, the old altar of sacrifice in the temple, where the animals were sacrificed, the blood would run down the altar and collect underneath it. Here you get this very descriptive picture that the, the, those that have died are under the altar. And then the inhabitants of the world, this is often a distinction because sometimes in Revelation it's speaking about the church or the chosen and sometimes it talks about the world and the world are those that do not believe. So the world is mentioned in, in, in verse 10 of Revelation 6. And that is that part, that portion of the population, those people in the world that have opposed those who have held on to the word and witness of God. The interesting thing is there's no middle ground here. And that remains the same today. There's no middle ground. If you are not for Christ, you are against him. Matthew chapter 12 verse 30, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no in-between. You can't scatter and gather at the same time. So you're either a citizen of heaven or you're not. You're an inhabitant of earth in this language. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. That's so. So, the inhabitants of the earth are those who have committed to opposition. And the martyrs cry out for justice to be done. So, these first five seals really are just portraying different aspects of the whole of history of mankind. Just strife, turmoil, shortages. And then we come to seal six. Now we are dealing more with the church. Because this describes the day 
it will end it all. <laughs> and chapter 6, the sixth seal, is verses 12 to 17. And it says, this is the great day of their wrath. Verse 17 says that. So these, this describes some vivid and dramatic events that describe the parousia that I talked about earlier, the coming of Jesus. Christ's return to the earth there will be a time of great shaking so that only <coughs> that which cannot be shaken <laughs> will remain. And here we're reading from Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant who speaks from heaven by the gospel. Moses spoke for, for God to the Jews, but Jesus speaks to all men Jew and Gentile. And the shaking that will come will do away with all that was temporal, the law and religion, and only that which cannot be shaken, which is the gospel system, if I can put it that way, will remain. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, because it reigns in the hearts of men. It's not a physical place. Reigns in the hearts of believers. It's a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 14. And that's the kingdom that is ours, the kingdom of God that is within you. There's no physical kingdom to see, the kingdom exists within you, the kingdom of God. So this is a passage of Revelation that has a corresponding narrative in Matthew chapter 24, which we talked about earlier, part of, the, of Jesus' teaching. And uh, the events of the first four seals are, are not the sign of Christ's return and the end of the age, but rather they are commonplace to history. And the four horsemen have been riding out over that the earth from, from that day to this and they continue, continue to do so. And then the four living creatures cry out come! As each of those seals is broken, they say come! And now who are they calling? They're not calling John because he's already there. <laughs> They're not calling the riders of the, of the horses. They do not come, they are just simply revealed. But they are calling to someone who is both promised and desired, and that is Jesus. Revelation 1 says, hey, Behold, he is coming. And that's the cry of the living creatures here, which is followed by the cry of those that are under the altar. When, when they say, Come, they under the altar say, How long? How long will it be? When will it be? Desperation almost to know, which we never will be able to understand. So, as the Lamb unseals the scroll of history, we see how the suffering world is revealed. And uh, it does not exempt the people of God from suffering either. Uh, those who believe will face the same testings as those who do not believe. We're still part of the world. 
there's no respite from hardship for believers. Uh, it applies to God's people as well as to those that aren't. Until the end of the world. And at that stage, the complete number or the total number who are, to, who are witnesses for Christ will be known only then. So, Revelation 6, John is shown the woes which will sweep across the world, even the church as we've mentioned. But despite this, we have this wonderful assurance that God is <clears throat> still on the throne and that the church is indestructible. It survives through all of that. Then after, after that, we, uh, we see in chapter 7, John's vision doesn't seem to follow in the order of the events that we've seen. John simply says, after the opening of the sixth seal, I saw. He didn't say, I, the next thing I saw was. He just says, I saw. So people have really taken those, like I see, to be the next, well, if you saw that, now he's seeing this. But it doesn't necessarily mean that what he's seeing now necessarily follows what he saw before. Okay. It's not a chronological thing here. I'm sure John would have said, first I saw this, and that was to be followed by this. It never appears as such. He didn't say, this is what happens next. What he saw suggested a change of focus, rather. Um, before the four horsemen were mentioned, um, the church is sealed. He's speaking of the sealing of the church here, but it must have taken place before the destruction. So the sealing, which we find in verses 4 to 12 um, of chapter 7, he says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. Now we come to some very interesting things that people speculate on. In verse 3, the big question always is, who are the 144,000 that are sealed? But just skip that for a moment and then go through to, to verse 9, where that 144,000 is now spoken of as a great multitude, numberless, from all tribes and peoples. So verse 3 tells us that those who are sealed are the servants of God. They are all of those who have believed. If we have believed, we have been sealed. We know that, eh? Yeah. Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, which was a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. So, in other words, 
You don't have to be circumcised to be declared righteous or be sealed. You are sealed before that. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, uh, Paul again writes, he says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So we were sealed when we first put our faith in Christ. From that moment forward, and, ult and so ultimately, from that moment forward, our, our, our safety, if I can put it that way, is guaranteed. So the horsemen of destruction ride out, but we the church, we've been made indestructible. We will suffer hardships. We will also suffer scarcities and all the rest, but we are indestructible. That's the good news. In verse 4, the, the, the sealed are described as 144,000 Israelites. Now, there's a huge thing there where, I don't know how to put this, but people are going bonkers about Israel. Israel is very much part of your destiny sort of thing. Well, I don't know. Israel isn't mentioned in Revelation, by the way. There's nothing about what God is going to do with Israel. No, God is a God of all people. And He loves Israel as much as He loves every other nation. Mm -hmm. I can put it that way. And so, you know, there, there, is, this, there is this thing that's interwoven into end times discussion that you've got to watch the signs that happen in Israel. That's, I can't find that anywhere in the Bible. But it's, it sounds good and it's, I think it's a, it's a view that is pushed by certain influences, if I can put it that way. Uh, but there are, a lot of, there are a lot of parallels to Israel. And you know, that's true that the uh, you know, uh, although there are many theories about the Israelites, what does it mean here? The fact remains is that we are God's people. Israelite or not Israelite, you know. Um, they're not just 144,000 of us, as, as I think the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you. If you're not in that 144,000, toughies. Uh, but there are millions of us, man. <laughs> so. You know, again, this is just a symbolic figure, I, I believe. It's a symbolic figure rather than a statistical figure. Um, and in the New Testament, the titles and the privileges that are accorded to Israel are very often applied to the church. There's any number. James chapter 1 verse 1, James writes this in his opening in his letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Now, he's not writing to the Jews. He's writing to the church. Mm -hmm. But he calls the church the twelve tribes, which is Israel. So we are the Israel of God. <laughs> 1 Peter 1 verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who writes to God's elect. We are the elect, 
That's another thing that belonged to, to the people of Israel. Romans 2 verse 29. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, Amen. not by the written code. That's a true Jew. Okay, you see the difference. Galatians 6 verse 16. Paul writes, Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So you belong to God as much as Israel belonged to God. In that connotation of a priesthood. And Galatians chapter 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. Amen. And then Philippians 3.3 For if we who are the circumcision, that's us, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So, you can rest assured when you come across Israel in Revelation, is talking about us, the church. It's just a way of expressing the church, the Israel of God. It mentions the tribes of Israel there. The very interesting thing is it, it mentions the tribes of Israel in an unusual order. <laughs> it's not found in the Bible. And the, the tribe of Dan is omitted from this list of the 12 tribes. And instead the, the, the tribe of Joseph is included. Now no, no saver Jew would ever buy that one. <laughs> He would say, no, this is wrong. <laughs> so just these little subtleties introduced, I think, just to help convince us even further that what he's talking about here is not Israel, Israel, but Israel of God, the church. Judas first. Hmm? Judas. Yeah. First yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. And the interesting thing too is that according to this, each tribe contributes 12,000 people. 12 times 12 is 144,000. Now that's crazy. Because some of the tribes were far bigger than the others. <laughs> and normally if you look at all the other tables where the tribes of Israel are mentioned and the numbers are thrown around, they are different. <laughs> Contributions of fighting men, etc., etc. They're a number. So, yeah, all of a sudden, oh, you know, the church is equality. Yeah, I believe that. <laughs> I think it's vouchers for that. But I think all of this that we've just been talking about would have been far better understood, perhaps, by people in John's day uh, when the Jewish roots of the church were, were still relatively well known to all. <clears throat> right, so the... By verse 9, as I said, the 144,000 now has reached a, a great number, a multitude, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Well, no man could count their number. God knows who they are. Isn't that amazing? 
in that great multitude, they're not just a, a mass of people and faces. They are people that God knows. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. You know, that's what it says in, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. Eh? The Lord knows those who are His. He knows you. We might forget you, but He knows you. And He will never forget you. So he heard, John heard that the, the total given was 144,000. But he saw a numberless multitude. Yeah. He saw he saw a multitude. The Israel of God from every nation. What's promised to Abraham? Pardon? That was promised to Abraham. Yeah. All the nations of the world. All the nations, yeah. So the, the people of God whose final redemption is, is guaranteed by their being sealed are represented here by the 24 elders, as we've seen appear in verse 4 of chapter 4. And together there, with this, the four living creatures, and numberless angels, and all those who are present to form this huge, gigantic congregation who worship and sing of Jesus and his triumphs, there's all nation, all of creation brings worship to God. For he does, and all he does throughout the ages. Then in chapter 7, verses 13 to 17, there's a reference there to those who are clothed in white robes. Now, who are they? And generally the answer given is that they are those who have come through great tribulation or oppression. Their robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and they are now before the throne of God, having received new life, which no tribulation could quench. Notice it says they have come through great tribulation. They're not caught up in great tribulation. And it's not a great tribulation. It's great tribulation. Sure. Because that's another thing that has grown up into yeah. the discussion on Revelation is the great tribulation. Capital G-D. You know? I don't think there is a... There, there will certainly be a time of intense persecution at the end of the age but but you know if you're living in fear of when is the great tribulation coming I think we're living in it now <laughs> yeah. I mean I don't know if men can get more wicked than they are already and things cannot get worse <laughs> so we're talking here about all the saints hey wonderful when the saints go marching in. So the main point really of this scene is to show that all of God's people are safe. There's another assurance for us. Eh? We're all safe amidst all the troubles and tribulations that life brings. And those that are alive physically and on earth are as secure as those who are glorified in heaven. Those who have gone before us. 
So our testimony and our declaration is really Psalm 91, eh? which I'm sure you all know. So, we may not be insulated against trouble and hardship, and there's no escape from suffering until the end comes. The only escape you have is by martyrdom. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You're not going to be raptured out of this. <laughs> I don't believe. You might think differently when you've studied Revelation, but I don't think so. I think we are here for the long haul because we, we are well protected. And we know where we belong. And we know who we are and we know what we're here to do. And we know that God is so longing for all men to receive salvation. Amen. So, you know, we don't know when, when the end will come, but I just feel in my spirit God's not going to pull the plug shortly. <laughs> he has, for thousands of years, resisted that. Will he resist it further? Okay. Then the seventh seal is the final seal which is opened. And now there's silence in heaven. And uh, if you're disturbed by noise, you'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> but I think the noise that you hear in heaven is just so glorious that you never want it to stop. So the Lamb opens the seventh seal and there's half an hour silence. So the opening of the seal has revealed to John what the experience of the church in the world will be. And yet there is another world to come, but this will only be revealed later. But for now, God is still on the throne. Jesus is still the center of all things. The church and his people, indestructible. So really the period of silence, I think, was just to give John a chance <laughs> to catch his breath. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you would do if you were having all this revealed to you, one after another. Mm. I think you'd be, yeah, you'd be emotionally exhausted. <laughs> and you must be bored at the Pardon? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You must have had an apple. <laughs> so here we have John at the end just kind of meditating on what have I seen how do I write this how do I describe this I think that's what he needed half an hour for <laughs> not a whole day yeah so there are these numbers uh <clears throat> 24, as I've mentioned, is a, is a, is a number that uh, only appears in Revelation six times. The number 24 is used. Um, the 24 elders, 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, that's the 24. Um, and then we see them being brought together when uh, the, the gates of the city and the foundation of the city of God is described where their names are engraved, the apostles of the Lamb and the tribes of Israel. <clears throat> it's 
It's like there's a linking together. And uh, Old Testament, New Testament. 24 elders, I think we've mentioned that, that it, I believe it represents the, the whole church. Um, seven, the number of perfection. And then, of course, 666. Yeah, and also, you know, what is its significance? Really, 666 is a number ascribed to the beast who's sought rather to exalt himself above God, but all his efforts failed. He never, he failed to reach perfection. You can almost say he got like two-thirds of the way there, 666. <laughs> And he could never get to seven. I don't know if there's any other explanations. I'm sure there's lots of fanciful ones which people have got. Um, but I think in the light of the context of Revelation, it's just another indication, man, that the efforts of man, how frightening they may appear to us. God's eyes. Nonsense. <laughs> God is not thrown by that sort of stuff. And then are uh, the four the four living creatures again uh, they've been they've been people that we've seen in Ezekiel Ezekiel chapter one verse five uh, I, I can't honestly say that that I've come across any plausible explanation for the four living creatures. But I'm sure there must be one somewhere. So that's basically covering scene two in a bit more detail. So that's the sort of those are the sort of byways, and you know I've read it to you in a in a few minutes or whatever. But this took a long time <laughs> to get here, uh, but it was an exciting journey. I mean, I learned stuff that I've never even thought about, or if I had thought about it, put it on hold because it's too difficult. And eventually, I say, no, I have to, I have to confront this. I have to, I have to satisfy myself. God's speaking in this book, and I need to hear what He's saying. So, I was encouraged after I read this. But hey, this is good. Okay. So we're now at 25 to 2. I'll just, uh, as I say, we don't have the time to go through. See one scene. <laughs> I don't know if some of your eyes are reaching down to your toes. <laughs> so let's just quickly talk about one or two things that people may ask you questions about. Uh, let's deal with 666. Now, most people, I think, widely believe that, that the Antichrist, capital A, uh, does not exist in the Revelation. There's no reference to Antichrist or that he's a person. Um, but most people ascribe him as being a powerful, charismatic figure who will take control 
of the One World Government before persecuting Christians in a great tribulation. That's generally what people say about the Antichrist. Now there are various names that have cropped up over centuries. Napoleon was the Antichrist. No, Hitler was. I think it was Mussolini. Oh no, he's this politician or that politician. A favorite amongst uh, Protestants has been the Pope is the Antichrist. Amen. Richard Brother. In fact, Martin Luther declared the Pope to be the Antichrist. So, believe it. (laughs) Nonsense. Uh, The latest one I heard was Harry Potter. (laughs) I don't know if the Antichrist would be happy about that. But the most current favour, of course, is Vladimir. (laughs) Vladimir. He is the Antichrist. So, you know how many books have been written about the Antichrist, according to Amazon? 4,893. More books have been written about the Antichrist than have been written about Paul, the Apostle. More books have been written about the Antichrist than about the Gospel of Grace. And the Christian magazines, and I have nothing against Christian magazines, but they they frequently mention the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. They actually perpetuate this myth. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying they're not doing that maliciously. They actually do believe. Mm -hmm. I would think so. And they always use a capital A. Now, when Antichrist appears in Scripture on the few occasions that it does, it is always a small a. And it's the Antichrist. (laughs) So, what about the Antichrist in Scripture? Well, how many times did Jesus speak about the Antichrist? Zero. How many times does Paul mention the Antichrist? Zero. What about Peter? What about James and and Jude? Zero. And now in Revelation, how many times do we come across the Antichrist? Zero. So, what is all this nonsense for? So the four verses of Scripture, obviously you're probably familiar with that. You know, that's all that we have, four verses of scripture <laughs> about mentioning Antichrist. I mean, if he was so important and so, you know, someone that had to be reckoned with, I'm sure Jesus would have mentioned it. Or if not Jesus, Paul, but they neither do. So the only one who mentions Antichrist is John himself. And he mentions that an Antichrist is someone who denies Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh from God. That's what Antichrist means. 
you're Antichrist, you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So there's millions of Antichrists around. <laughs> Little ones. And John only mentions it five times. And he does that specifically because he's writing to, to people who are being troubled by false teaching, especially Gnosticism, uh, which denied the deity of, of Jesus. And uh, so in John, 1 John 2 verse 22, 2 John 1 verse 7, he was addressing the demonic spirit that is behind Gnosticism, which is, uh, as I've said, a false teaching that had infiltrated many congregations of the New Testament church. And uh, what does he say? He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Even then, it was the last hour. And as you've heard, that Antichrist, not the Antichrist, that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. <laughs> you know, they're like six for a penny. You know, every guy running around <laughs> thinking, who's, who does God think he is? Or who does Jesus think he is? You know, uh, 1 John 2 verse 22. Who is the liar? Says John. It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 4 verse 3. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Yeah. 2 John verse 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and an antichrist. End of the matter. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> now we know. So in the next YouTube video on... Antichrist, you know, the usual <laughs> blood dripping off the letters and oh, no. you know, <laughs> delete. <laughs> and it's interesting, of course, that when John writes these things, he, he's, he's writing, he assumes that the people he's writing to are familiar with Antichrist. Many Antichrists, not one. Many are already active in their churches. And uh, so that's all there is to say on the matter. And the King James speaks of Antichrist, not the Antichrist. And it uses a small A, not a capital A. And that's the Antichrist. Ah, but you've missed the point. The Antichrist, he must be the man of lawlessness. The man of sin. Oh, who's he? No, you know, Paul wrote about him in Thessalonians. He wrote to the Thessalonians. He speaks of the rebellion that's coming, or the falling away, and the man of lawlessness, which the King James Version says is the man of sin, the man who missed the mark. Amartya. Yeah. yeah, the son of perdition, as the King James Version spells it out. So, many commentators say, oh, well, the Antichrist is, you know, the man of lawlessness is another name for the Antichrist. Now, that's, that's bad hermeneutics. That's reading into Scripture 
something instead of taking something from Scripture. And that is bad studentship. Don't do that. <laughs> so the Thessalonians had been led to believe that the day of the Lord had already come. The end of, someone had told them, hey, boys, you know that? The end is already here. And so Paul is writing now to assure them that this is not so and uh, that two other things have to take place first. First is there is to be a falling away or as the NIV translated rebellion, which is not a good word. First there will be a rebellion or falling away or defection from the, from the faith or forsaking. Uh, that's where our word apostasy comes from. And the second thing that happens is the man of lawlessness is revealed. And he's also described as the man of doomed to destruction. The man of lawlessness is one who opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. He sets himself up in God's temple. And he proclaims himself to be God. When it says there, God's temple, it uses the Greek word, naos. Okay, you know there's two words for temple in Greek. <laughs> Just for a change. No, no, not surprised. <laughs> yeah. uh, I can't think of the other one. But naos is really speaking about the holy of holies. That's the inner temple. And then there's another word, helion uh, Come on, read the Greek. Mm. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's another Greek word which means the temple, meaning the whole setup. Okay, the courtyards and everything. So when, when, when Paul says, Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's talking about Naos, where God dwells. See, God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. So that's the temple that Paul is speaking about. He's not talking about this fancy building with colonnades and everything else. He's talking about the core of the matter. So this man of lawlessness sets himself up in God's temple. Now, please understand this. God's finished with temples, buildings. You know, the fact that, oh, one of the signs is the temple has to be rebuilt. The temple in Jerusalem. Well, they can rebuild it. It doesn't mean anything to God. He's not interested in temples anymore. He's got a temple. Yeah. He's got many temples. <laughs> so, is this man of lawlessness a single person? Is it just one individual? Is this man of lawlessness the Antichrist? Oh, the other word is Heron. Or temple. Naos is the, the Holy of Holies. Heron is the entire temple precinct. So God is not living in the Heron. He's living in the Naos. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Eh? So in the King James Version, the, the man of lawlessness is described as the man of sin. The man who missed the mark. Now, who's the man who missed the mark? The man of dust. The dust man. Adam. 
Eh? Throughout history, many people have set themselves up as being above God and demanded masses, worship from the masses, etc., of worship themselves. Maybe we were some of them. Possibly the real man of sin is the one who sits in God's temple, which is not made of stone. The man who has a sinful heart and is needing of salvation. So don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? We are the temple of the living God. And the God who does not live in temples built by hands is the God that we serve. So possibly a man of lawlessness is just simply unredeemed man. Man who's living for himself. Man who's, who sees himself as the center of his life, not God. Man who has no space in his heart for God, for the things of God, but just is self-centered, self-focused on himself. Just a, just a suggestion. Maybe Romans 1? Romans 1, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the state of man without God. While, we, while we're not living with God in us, we are living for ourselves. And we are missing the mark. <laughs> okay. Some of you look a bit perplexed. Others look like you need a, sna a, a snooze. <laughs> Shall we... Were you going to say something about the rapture? Oh, I was going to say something about the rapture. All I can tell you is the rapture happened on the 21st of May, 2011. <laughs> <laughs> Saw it on YouTube. <laughs> but then it didn't. <laughs> but it then happened on the 23rd of September, 2017. Before COVID. So what are we talking about the rapture? It's, it's held to be one of the events of the end time when all believers who are alive together with resurrected believers and the resurrection, the first resurrection is also a very interesting thing to think about. But uh, that will have to stay for another day. But we believe, or they, uh, everyone believes that uh, the resurrected believers will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, there's no rapture in Revelation. It doesn't mention a rapture. So where does this rapture come from? This is like, like the, the man of lawlessness. You know? It's an intruder. Uh, well, that's found in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, surprisingly. Now, Paul created all sorts of issues for us here. Eh? <laughs> he just had such a nice cut-and-dried teaching. Now he comes and messes it up with all his stuff that he says to the Thessalonians. And uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, it's, it talks about uh, the a snatching away, which is a Greek word, harpazo, harpazo, to snatch away 
be seized, or to be caught up. And the idea of a rapture is, is, as it's currently defined, is not found anywhere in historic Christianity. So the believers of the first century did not believe in a rapture. Or, when I say did not believe, they didn't know what a rapture was, as an event. Okay? Uh, again, this is a relatively recent doctrine. And guess where it came from? The good old US of A. <laughs> We've got a rapture, shall ya? Are you ready, brothers? The rapture's coming. Are you ready? God's knocking at the door. <laughs> Is your tithing up to date? Quickly. It's the last moment. <laughs> Uh, so, like all other aspects related to eschatology, there's uh, diff differing views about the rapture. So, the pre-millennialists pre are the, the main rapture boys. Uh, <laughs> they distinguish the rapture and the second coming as separate events. Uh, get your mind around that one. Okay? So... In other words, they believe in a two-stage second coming. Yeah. Jesus comes, then he goes, and then he's going to come again. But the first time he came was a secret, so you didn't know it. <laughs> Unless you were raptured. <laughs> then you would know it. Okay. So the, the first stage that is described is in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 and 17, where Jesus comes for the saints. This is how they build the theology of the two-stage rapture. They say that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, 17, it says that Jesus is coming for the saints. And then the second stage is the return that is described in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31, where Jesus comes with the saints. So first he comes for the saints, and then later he comes back with the saints. Two separate things. And the time period that is between these two events? The Great Tribulation. <laughs> See what you've escaped. That's what happens. The saints, Jesus comes and takes us away, leaves the rest of the world to face the Great Tribulation, and when that's over, and He comes back, with us. Very nice. Comfortable stuff. Good money spinner. Good church builder. Yeah. And that's the diet of eschatology that I grew up on. I grew up on where the book on eschatology was called The Late Great Planet Earth. Have you ever read it? Written by Hal Lindsey. Sold millions of copies. And Hal Lindsey came from the Dallas Theological Seminary, which was the, the Bible College in Dallas, Texas. Very famous and very good Bible study, uh, Bible College. But they had been influenced by John Darby's dispensational doctrines. And 
they developed this thing there, and then Hal Lindsey wrote about it, and because Hal Lindsey wrote about it, everybody believed it. So it's just, you know, people they think you're crazy if you say, is there a tribulation, is there a rapture? You know, they say, what do you mean? <laughs> um, you know, we're getting out of here. <laughs> and then they, what made it worse is we were shown a movie once called Like a Thief in the Night. Because that's how the rapture is going to happen. Yeah. Jesus is going to come secretly and those that know him are going to be whipped away and the rest of you are going to stay behind. And then Tim LaHaye wrote a, a whole series of books on Left Behind. Jeez, yeah. yeah. <laughs> boy, you read that, you don't want to be left behind. That's for sure. But by then it's too late. But, but... But that is a, a, a terrifying film. It had serious psychological repercussions on millions of people. It was so vivid. And I remember we showed, it was shown at our church. This is a must-see for all believers. And this little kid runs into the room and mommy's not there anymore. <laughs> never forget the two neighbors mowing their lawns. <laughs> Still in the day when you pushed your mower. Yeah. They were mowing their lawns every time they got to see each other. Hi, bud. And then they went and you know, he walked this way and he walked that way. And they finished another row and they came back and said, Hi, bud. And then this guy came back and he came back and all he saw was a mower coming towards him. <laughs> <laughs> you see, he wasn't safe. <laughs> that was the stuff they showed in that movie. <laughs> and mom was in the kitchen bed making something in like a Kenwood mixer. Yeah. And then she wasn't in the kitchen, but the mixer was still there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thief in the night. Frightening stuff. I mean, if you were insecure about your salvation, yes, you would, you would, so. you'd be in turmoil, really. And it was so, so earnestly presented, you know. I mean, these people don't do this for fun. They actually do believe this. You know, so I'm not poo-pooing that side of it. So, oh, that's, uh, that's the, 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 the main form of belief of the rapture that is prevalent today. Um, so these are two separate events. Um, when, if you're an amillennialist or a post-millennialist, then you've got a similar view and they just see this, the rapture as the second coming described in, at, the end of the, at the end of time. So, the, so in other words, there's no event called the rapture. It's simply as when, when, time, when the day of the Lord arrives and the judgment and things are complete, we go to be with God. Full stop. Right. But then the, the pre-tribulationists, as I say, they've got this thing of a two-stage um, rapture. And therefore they believe in the great tribulation. And as I've said to you, I don't believe there is such a thing as the great tribulation. There is great tribulation, that's for sure. There, will, there has been, always will continue to be. Uh, because... Men just resist God 
to the end. That's, that's the tragic part. I found that so incredible. In spite of everything that happens, he still resists God. So, I think I've said enough about that. Now it's two o'clock. And I both have your song, yes, I'm a Thank you. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to connect with us, or if you'd like us to pray with you, please contact us at info at gracelife.co. If you'd like to order more resources or discover more about us, you can visit our website at www.gracelife.co or find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube.